Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Todd Wicks. The Monroe County Solid Waste Management District Board continues to explore composting as a way to reduce the trash sent to landfills. The board met with area trash and compost haulers last month. The talks were part of an ongoing discussion about expanding residential pickup, exploring commercial options, and possibly creating drop-off sites. Solid Waste Management Director Tom McGlasson Jr. said a 2018 report from Kessler Consulting revealed 8 to 10,000 tons of food could be diverted from local landfills through composting. Uh, we met with um, the local composting facilities uh, last month. Uh, you know, and they, they indicated, you know, that there, there's an interest in, uh, uh, you know, in, in receiving that material. They have the capacity or willing to expand to generate the capacity to receive that material. Uh, so now we've invited the haulers to come talk with us. And, you know, we want to see, uh, get your thoughts and perspectives on, uh, uh, you know, collecting and hauling this material to the local composting facilities. And, uh, you know, what, what, would it, what would it take to accomplish that from the haulers perspective? Haulers say basic issues like what containers to use and where to haul the waste will be needed to be decided. But the overarching concern is how to keep waste streams separated and clean. Haulers find plastics and metals in food waste and rotting food among recyclables. Calvin Davidson of Ray's Trash Service said educating the community is crucial. It's much easier to keep the post-industrial waste clean and segregated yeah. than it is the post-consumer stuff is challenging. Okay. A lot of education there. Yeah. Davidson recommended the board focus its initial efforts on post-industrial waste rather than post-consumer waste. By post-industrial scrap, I mean uh, places that are preparing the food preparation houses that are clipping the tops off of the broccoli and the mm -hmm. bottoms <coughs> off of the pineapple or the whichever, you know, those kinds of yeah. things. That's very clean and controllable. Yeah. Yeah. And a great place to start, probably the lowest hanging fruit, there I go again with my <laughs> dad jokes, um, but really starting there is, is to get the momentum, to get the good clean material and a volume of good clean material, I think is the lower hanging fruit that uh, creates the education opportunity. Mm -hmm. Then people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. Regardless, uh, for years we talked about recycling and we talked about including other recyclable items and programs. The, if you pick the most difficult step to make first, if it doesn't go well, everybody's going to know about it. Pick the step you feel most confident in doing well. Put your best foot forward would be my advice. Citizens Advisory Committee member Kevin Dogan asked Fable Farms owner Andrea Avina whether the variety of material received makes a difference in how it's composted. Avina said usually not because her company does small-scale composting. However, she said accepting food waste on the scale Davidson proposed could mean that she has to significantly alter her composting mix. 
for us, it doesn't make a difference. We have like a, a standard recipe in the compost world. You talk about recipes of what, what, your in, what your feedstock proportions are. We have a standard recipe that works pretty much for everything we bring in. But if most of what you're getting is commercial and larger volumes, That's different. then you're not going to get that exactly. same mix every time. And um, Exactly. And we kind of, I mean, we kind of experience that with the sororities where we get the bigger amounts of food because this is, I mean, it's entire... I don't know, an entire stew that just didn't get eaten, right? And so it's just like buckets and buckets of the same thing. And that's where like our average varies a little bit. But this is still a sorority where maybe 100 girls live. It's, it's not uh, industrial scale. So something like what he is proposing it would be a little more complicated for us immediately to adapt to because it's suddenly if you get a bunch of pineapples and it's a ton of water, then you do need to uh, change your recipe to, to account for it. Following up again on Davidson's example, Avina said, though industrial waste items may be cleaner, some industrial waste items, such as cake icing, will be never be acceptable for her company. So these are things that we can definitely not take because we, we just don't have a way to like completely change our recipe and make an entire windrow with I don't know how many tons of icing. So, so things <laughs> like that, which are in, in some way are the low-hanging fruit because it's just icing and it's clean, they're also a little harder to, to compost. The city of Bloomington has allowed private composters to serve households on their sanitation routes. Public Works Director Adam Wason said there may be other ways the city can accommodate composting. We're entertaining some ideas of having, you know, potentially having some public drop-off sites, or well, I don't know if they'd be considered public drop-off sites, but accommodating folks with, like, like Fable Farms, with uh, opportunities to use um, potentially public lands to mm -hmm. have a drop-off site mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, something we'll 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 explore, and you know, we'll we're more than willing to try new things and uh, mm -hmm. see if it works. So, no decisions were made at the meeting. Solid Waste Management Director Tom McGlasson Jr. said the board will continue to explore composting and recycling options. The Bloomington Parks Department continues to fight invasive plants on park properties. Natural Resources Coordinator Elizabeth Tompkins secured the park board's approval for a contract with Aquatic Control Incorporated to treat aquatic invasive plants at Griffey Lake. This treatment of aquatic invasive plants, as you know, uh, we do terrestrial plants as well, but this is actually plants that are in the lake that both have an impact to native plants as well as user enjoyment of the lake through boating and fishing. It's important for us to continue to maintain this aquatic environment. City landscaper Joanna Sparks told the park board she is wrangling terrestrial invasive plants at Park Ridge East Neighborhood Park on Bloomington's east side. The board approved Sparks' request to hire land surveyors to clearly delineate park boundaries before eradication efforts begin. There's um, 4.64 acres at Park Ridge East, and over half of it is pretty infested, um, mostly with bush honeysuckle, <coughs> Asian bush honeysuckle, but there's, there's lots of icky things there. And um, the um, Park Ridge East um, Neighborhood Association has a native plants group, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and they um, have already done um, several work days at the park, um, pulling Japanese um, stiltgrass and removing invasives. Um, Sparks said controlling invasive plants at Park Ridge East will help prevent the spread of invasive species to properties downstream of the park. The city is fighting another kind of invasive species in its ash trees, the emerald ash borer, 
The Asian native is a serious threat to North American ash trees, killing millions since its discovery in Michigan in 2002. The beetle's larvae feed on the underside of ash tree bark, hindering the tree's ability to absorb nutrients and water. Urban forester Lee Huss told board member Kathleen Mills 31 ash trees will be treated this year. Just for a little more information for people, so we've got four of these are in Bryan Park, one in Schmaltz Park, two at Showers, and then one in the Park Ridge East Correct. playground? Correct, the playground okay. area. And then there's a, 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 long, a number of them in the Longview and East 7th area. We have some at the 3rd Street Fire Station, some at 3rd Street Park. Two relative, the two largest trees in Seminary Park happen to be ash trees, and they're both 44-inch diameter. There's wow. one on the east side, west side of College and Walnut. They are they're probably the largest ash trees that we're attempting to save. And then we have a relatively large one also on Highland Avenue. The park board approved a contract with Bartlett Tree Experts of Indianapolis to treat the ash trees. The next meeting of the Board of Park Commissioners is scheduled for May 21st. Researchers have found a link between air pollution and dementia. This news comes as the Trump administration's attempts to delay or roll back environmental regulations are worsening air quality in many U.S. cities. One study performed on elderly Londoners showed that those exposed to higher levels of air pollution were about one and a half times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than those exposed to the lowest levels. As her mother Jones reports, nitrogen dioxide and fine particulate matter were the pollutants most strongly linked to this conclusion. The London study and another one done on an all-adult resident of Ontario both reached another conclusion. They estimate that 6-7% to 7 of the dementia cases in their populations were attributable to air pollution. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. And now, it's time for Get Out and Hike. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. This week, I'm with Jill Vance, a naturalist at Monroe Lake, who will be talking to us about a few fine trails just south of Bloomington, Indiana. At Fairfax State Recreation Area on Monroe Lake, we have uh, one marked trail for people, and it's called the Big Oak Trail. It's uh, about a 1.7-mile loop, roughly, uh, with a little side loop off of that. They'll give you an extra quarter mile. Uh, it's called the Big Oak Trail because there is a big oak tree along it, uh, one of the trees uh, that survived the cutting when the land was being cleared for farmland and uh, has persevered up through today um, as the forest has grown back and around it. So it's pretty neat. It's by the North Trailhead and it's definitely uh, worth checking out. Big Oak Trail is overall rated moderate. Uh, 
there is a couple, well, there's one very big steep hill climb, and you're going to hit it either way, whether you go in from the north or the south, you're going to end up climbing up. Um, but once you're up on the top of the hill, it's, uh, it is flat and wide up on top. Uh, the lower section of the trail uh, crosses over uh, three or four little creek beds, so you want to be prepared make a little jump there. It is an accessible trail for children, um, although I probably wouldn't recommend it for uh, the toddler age range. And the, the little, if you're looking to grab that little extra quarter of a mile, the evergreen loop that comes off of the Big Oak Trail circles around the little pond in a planted um, evergreen area. Um, and it's a really scenic place and a good place to go in the spring, too, if you want to do some uh, frog watching or frog listening. Uh, it's at Fairfax State Recreation Area, which is one of our gated locations. Uh, so there is an entry fee charged uh, from late spring uh, all the way through the fall months. Uh, however, we do not charge there uh, during the winter. So you know, mid-November to about mid-March, entry is free to Fairfax. Thank you, Jill. How old would you say this uh, oak tree is? Uh, well, when our map was made, they they noted it probably around 175 years old. I don't know that it's ever actually been cored. Um, I would I would put it probably at a guess at 200 plus. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. In today's feature report. WFHB's Norm Holy speaks with Indiana Forest Alliance Executive Director Jeff Stant. The Indiana Forest Alliance recently completed a five-year ecological study of Yellowwood State Forest. In this second part of their interview, Stant tells Holy about their current eco-blitz in the Hoosier National Forest and their need for volunteers. I'd like to have you briefly talk about your next eco-blitz and whether you can use volunteers. Yes, our next eco-blitz is in the Hoosier National Forest, about 20 miles uh, southeast of the current site we're finishing up at the southern end of Brown County. It's going to cover 734 acres. Uh, We're going to have teams studying 12 broad groups of, of taxa and scientists at the head of each of those teams. And to get out there and do the, the inventorying, we, we need volunteers to go along with these scientists to hold the data sheets and and if you have any knowledge of any of these taxonomic groups help identify species in these groups we'll have a group that goes out there and looks at vascular plants those are trees bushes uh, shrubs uh, herbaceous plants on the forest floor uh, everything from sedges and ferns to giant trees we'll have a group that looks at non-vascular plants, mosses, liverworts, they, they call them bryophytes. We'll have a group that's looking at fungi and mushrooms. We have a lichenologist from the New York Botanical Garden who will be coming out again looking at lichens. Now, he generally works alone. There's been no lichen surveys in Indiana until we did the lichen survey at the Yellowwood Backcountry area for 70 years in, in any hardwood forest. And so, and we couldn't find a lichenologist in, in Indiana that could do this survey. So we, we've got this guy from New York coming back, Dr. James Landimer. Uh, he'll be surveying lichens, but probably won't need volunteers. He takes a lot of lichen samples and takes them back to New York and identifies them there at the Botanical Garden. We'll have insect groups that will set up both traps for flying insects and pit traps on the ground and survey insects all summer long 
in, in all the families and in one focusing on beetles. We'll have uh, people focusing on butterflies. The guy who designs moth traps for scientists to use, he'll be also, we hope, doing a moth survey at this site. The moths found at the Yellowwood Ecoblitz site by this gentleman, Leroy Kane, who owns this small firm called Leptraps. This, uh, Leroy said he's, you know, he's been surveying for 50 years all over the country, and the only site in the eastern United States where he has found more moths than this site is in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and that was with four or five lepidopterists surveying constantly. With just Leroy alone, with an assistant that we were providing, have documented, we think by the time he's done this summer, 1,600 different moths using the Yellowwood and Morgan Monroe backcountry area. So he'll be important to bring into this new survey as well. The moth diversity in Indiana forests is just, it's, it's stunning. The spiders, we'll look at them. Uh, we'll have a group looking at macroinvertebrates. The Combs Creek has two big branches in this deep forest that we'll be surveying. We want to know what bugs are living in the water. Uh, and the, the bugs living in the water are an indicator of the quality of the water in the streams. The bugs at the Honey Creek at Morgan Monroe, Yellowwood Backcountry area, were bugs that live in clean water. We're anticipating we'll find the same thing in Combs Creek, but we want to find out. They, they may do some electroshocking as well for fish, limited, but we're looking for the stream biologists to do that work right now. We have one lined up to do the macroinvertebrates. We did survey for fish in, at Honey Creek. We anticipate doing it here at Combs Creek. Reptiles and amphibians will have a, a professor from Hanover, uh, Brian Gall, bringing his class to start those surveys in May at Combs Creek, and we'll have bird surveys. We, we hope to have an expert from IU uh, leading those surveys. We're going to try to develop protocols that the hardwood ecosystem experiment that DNR is doing on state forest land in Morgan, Monroe, and Yellowwood uh, that is comparable to their survey protocols so we can compare the results. We'll also just do a general bird surveys. And that will, again, also start in, in May. And next year, we'll come back to the site and want to start them earlier in April. And finally, the mammals will have three groups we're surveying there. One is will be for small mammals like white-footed mice and shrews, the pygmy and smoky shrews that exist only in undisturbed forests in the state. The pygmy shrews, the smallest mammal on the earth, or at least it competes with the bumblebee bat for that title. Uh, and it exists in the deep, undisturbed forests in south-central Indiana. It survives there under large logs. Uh, we'll also, unlike the Yellowwood Ecoblitz survey, be setting up camera traps for larger mammals at Combs Creek. Uh, we hope with help and advice from uh, some professors at Butler University who are doing that work around some urban forests in Indianapolis. And then we'll have bat surveys uh, again, uh, as we had at Yellowwood. And those bat surveys are extremely important, except for one of the species, uh, there are 11 species, they're all in trouble, all nose diving in population numbers. And so the even the Fish and Wildlife Service is talking about redesignating the northern long-eared bat to endangered from threatened. And so if we can find them in this forest, that'll be crucial uh, for underscoring the habitat needs of that animal, which they haven't been able to even find in their winter hibernacular surveys anymore. It's, it's nosedived so severely. The Indiana bat is endangered, as you know, and its numbers are slipping. 
and then two other bats, the tricolor bat and the little brown bat, are also we're targeting them to find out if they're in the deep forest. They both are known as deep forest bats, and both the numbers of them measured in these winter hibernacula counts. They, they're all cave hibernating bats, and the, their, their numbers have, have also declined by 90, 70 to 90 percent. Uh, so finding the presence of these bats out in this forest will help underscore the biological value of these forests for key insect predators that, that the system that exists in, in our hardwood forest. How does a, someone who wants to volunteer for this next EcoBlitz, how do they actually, where do they go to, to volunteer? We'll be putting out notices about it at, at indianaforestalliance.org, our website, and on our Facebook page, uh, we'll be, we have a listserv, and if people get a hold of us we will, and who want to be given notices of all of our surveys, they can, we can put them on that listserv to participate. And our conservation director, Dr. Ray Schnapp, will be our primary contact for the, the EcoBlitz at Combs Creek. People can reach her at ray at indianaforestalliance.org. That's R-A-E. Uh, than at indianaforestalliance.org, or they can email me directly. I'm the executive director. They can just email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at indianaforestalliance.org and uh, request to be put on our listserv and given notices of the surveys that will be coming up, and we'll be putting those notices out and then calling up the dates, and those notices will be based on our, our, our conversations with team leaders about when they can go out and do the surveys. And so we'll be putting out those dates and on the listserv and then telling people what they need uh, to bring and so forth to come out prepared to help us. Today I've been speaking with Jeff Stant. He's the executive director of the Indiana Forest Alliance. And I'd like to thank you very much for the interview. Well, well thank you, Norm. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. You have to turn the mic way up in order to pick up this sound, but it's the echolocation signal of the Indiana bat. Indiana bats live in hardwood forests and hardwood pine forests. It is common in old growth forests as well as agricultural land like croplands and old fields. Overall, the bats mostly live in forest, crop fields, and grasslands. As an insectivore, the bat will eat both terrestrial and aquatic flying insects like moths, beetles, and mosquitoes, and midges. The Indiana bat spends summer months living throughout the eastern United States. During winter, however, they cluster together and hibernate in only a few caves. 
Since about 1975, the population of Indiana bats has declined by about 50%. Based upon the 1985 census of hibernating bats, the Indiana bat population was estimated at 244,000. About 23% of the bats hibernated in caves in Indiana. The Indiana bat lives in caves only in winter, but there are few caves that provide the conditions necessary for hibernation. Stable, low temperatures are required to allow the bats to reduce their metabolic rates and conserve fat reserves. These bats hibernate in large, tight clusters which contain a, a few thousand individuals. You've been listening to In Nature. The Wings Over Muscatatuck Bird Festival will be held on Friday, May 10th through Sunday, May 12th. It will be at the Muscatatuck National Wildlife Refuge in Seymour, Indiana. Activities are planned for each day with many requiring advanced registration. For more information or to register, call 812-524-1914. For a complete schedule of the weekend events, go to www.jacksoncountyin.com. There is a volunteer opportunity at the fourth annual My Path Cleanup at McCormick's Creek State Park. It will be on Saturday, May 11th from 10 a.m. to noon. Volunteers will help clean up trash along River Road. Vests, trash bags, and gloves will be provided, but bring your own water. Meet at the Owen County Soil and Water Conservation District Office, located at 788 Pottersville Road. A Sweetie Hollow Nature Preserve guided hike in Monroe County is scheduled for Saturday, May 11th, from 10 a.m. to noon. This hike will take you through many different kinds of forest environments, as well as some sandstone cliffs. Sweetie Hollow is located in Morgan Monroe State Forest. Wear appropriate clothing and footwear. Register at the Indiana DNR website. Saturday, May 18th is Sustaining Nature and Your Land Day. Events are from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at City Hall, located at 401 North Morton Street in Bloomington. Bring your weeds and let an expert identify them and tell you how to control them. For more details, go to mc-ris.org. Take a full flower moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, May 18th. It will run from 9.30 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Lakeview Activity Center for a one-hour moderate hike on Trail 5. See the outdoors with a full moon and learn about the full flower moon. And that wraps up our show for the week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, Sarah Vaughn, and Wes Martin. 
Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy. Get Out and Hike was produced by Jan Walker. And Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Wes Martin engineered today's show. The script was edited by Andrew Brown, Kaylin Huffman-Brower, Sarah Vaughn, and Jan Walker. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.